This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to the CBS Sunday Morning Podcast on Play.it, brought to you by the new film Trumbo. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. To take liberty with the Broadway classic September song, the days really do grow short now that Halloween is history and we've reached the month of November. Certainly short in the sense of fewer hours of daylight. A massive power failure at this time of year could leave millions of us in the dark. A blackout that would be all the worse if it were the result of a deliberate attack. Chip Reed will report our cover story. It's the price of progress. The lights go out, sometimes for a couple of hours, maybe a couple of days. But what if the lights went out for weeks, even months? The work of cyber hackers. How prepared are we? Ted Koppel thinks the answer is not very. I mean, I've talked to every former Secretary of Homeland Security, and they all acknowledge there is no plan. This Sunday morning, are we in the dark about the risk of sabotage to our power grid? We say goodbye to daylight saving time during the night, which means it's about time 
we looked at timepieces, large and small. Martha Teichner has made time for that. You've heard the expression, I'll fix your clock. Well, when the clock is Big Ben. Putting on or taking off a penny on the pendulum like this, you speed up or slow down the clock by two-fifths of a second in 24 hours. And what do you do when your timepiece has 342 teeny tiny parts? Start a watchmaking school? Yes. In due time this Sunday morning, we'll explain. A new musical in preview on Broadway tells the life story of singer Gloria Estefan. This morning, we're getting a preview of our own from Lee Cowan. The rhythm got everyone. Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine were the soundtrack to the 80s and 90s. And now, one, two, three, four. Come on, baby, sing and let me The emotional story of one of Cuba's most famous exiles is on Broadway. I have cried more this year, 2015, <laughs> than in my entire lifetime. Get on your feet. How Gloria Estefan is still Get getting them on their feet ahead on Sunday morning. Get on your feet. He's a comic and commentator, and some would say a curmudgeon. His name is Bill Maher, and he's talking with our Tracy Smith. Look at these two dummies taking a selfie at the pivotal moment of their wedding ceremony. There's a photographer standing right behind you. If there are some things you just won't talk about, you're not Bill Maher. Do you regret anything you've said? I regret something I say every week. I never understand people who say, I have no regrets. What? What, do you, what world do you live in? This will be comedy, Bill. We'll spend some real time with Bill Maher later this Sunday morning. Check cannot miss. Also this morning, Rita Braver shows us the different perspective of a rising young artist. Steve Hartman has captured the proudest moment of a high school football coach. Bill Geist takes us to a reunion at Alcatraz and more. Coming up, lights out. Later, my mother sent me to art classes at the age of 11. The man of the moment, artist Kehinde Wiley. Based on the true story, Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traders. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated are under 17 not admitted without parent only in theaters this november everywhere thanksgiving as you can see we're in the dark and it's not just a belated nod to halloween it's a taste of what one noted journalist says could happen if a hacker managed to sabotage america's power grids our cover story is reported by chip reed When the lights go out, we usually know why. Hurricane Sandy coming ashore on the East Coast. Mother Nature is at it again. Most of the time, we manage to get through it. 
But what if the power went out in a number of states, affecting millions of people for weeks, even months? As you were researching this, did you personally find yourself getting frightened? I think frightened is a little bit too strong, but maybe I should have been. Yes, it's frightening. It is frightening enough that uh, my wife and I decided we were going to buy enough freeze-dried food for all of our kids and their kids. In his book, Lights Out, veteran journalist Ted Koppel paints a grim picture of a paralyzing power outage in the form of an all-out cyber attack on the nation's electrical grid. Who are the potential perpetrators here? Who do we have to fear the most? Is it Russia, China, Iran, terrorists, yeah. uh, individual actors? All those. The interesting thing, Chip, is um, the ones who are most capable are the ones least likely to do it. There are some experts who say they're already in. Oh, they are in. They are in. There in. is no question about it. They're they, into our grid. They are already in the grid. I was told that by the former chief scientist of NSA. He stated categorically the Russians are in, the Chinese are in. The Iranians may be on the verge of getting in. And then at the bottom of the capability scale are folks like ISIS, terrorist groups. The power grid is the system interconnecting North America's supply of electricity. If one area has particularly heavy demand, power from another region can sometimes serve as backup. The downside to all this? If a hacker manages to take down an entire grid, a huge portion of the country, along with parts of Canada, could go down with it. The primary reason? Like so much else these days, the grid relies heavily on the Internet. We have a sort of a joke in our, our security industry that there's, there's no secure system. The only secure one is uh, unplugged, turned off, and buried under six feet of concrete. Larry Pesci should know. He's a cybersecurity consultant who gets paid to find glitches in business computer networks. In other words, he's a hacker who works for the good guys. In the last six years you know, of me doing testing uh, full-time, um, there has never been a customer that we've been to that we have not gotten in. At 5.28 Tuesday evening, give or take a few seconds, an estimated 30 million people in the northeastern United States were plunged into an eerie blackness. Wide-scale outages are nothing new. In 1965, a huge blackout in the northeast left more than 30 million without power for almost 13 hours. New Yorkers have taken it in stride, have they, as far as you've been able to see? No, they have. You can ask them that. In 1977, New York City was plunged into darkness again, this time resulting in looting and other crimes. There have been massive power outages, blackouts. And in 2003, overgrown trees were partly to blame for a blackout that affected eight states and part of Canada, some 50 million people. That one lasted up to four days in some areas. But our next electric failure could be just a keystroke away. I'm not sure I know why it hasn't happened yet. It's, it's definitely not for, you know, not for lack of capability on various parts, uh, whether it be us or, or uh, an enemy. Um, I, I think it comes down to timing, and I, I think we need to make the right people mad at the right time. You would think the one entity that would be ready for something like this is the Department of Homeland Security. Yes. Are they ready? No. I mean, I've talked to every former 
Secretary of Homeland Security, and they all acknowledge there is no plan. He says the current secretary, Jay Johnson, didn't offer much guidance either. You described the conversation as prickly at one point. Well, it got prickly because I kept asking, what's the plan? Why wait until disaster strikes? Why not tell him, do you have a plan? And he just sort of pointed up at a shelf uh, filled with white binders, and he said, look, I'm sure there's something up there somewhere. We wanted to find out for ourselves, but both the White House and the Department of Energy declined our requests for an on-camera interview. The Department of Homeland Security also refused to speak on camera. Instead, we were given a statement, which reads in part, to be clear, the Department of Homeland Security has a plan. We, along with the Department of Energy, coordinate national efforts to strengthen the security and resilience of the electric grid. We also work with energy sector partners to promote the security and resilience of the grid through myriad activities both seen and unseen. Next, we reached out to some of the big electric companies. They refused to speak with us as well. Ted Koppel says the government basically has no plan. Is he right? No, he's not right. So we turned to Paul Stockton, a former Defense Department official whose duties included cybersecurity. The government is building plans very, very quickly now to help manage the consequences of an attack on the, on the grid, but also to make sure that government systems are more resilient against attack. Are the power companies today prepared to respond to a large-scale cyber attack on the grid? Power companies today are strengthening their ability to respond to an attack and restore power more quickly. Still, Stockton admits. Their readiness is not where it needs to be, given that the adversary continues to strengthen the sophistication of the weapons that will be used against the United States. Ironically, it's our less sophisticated electric providers who may have an edge here. This is uh, the South Canal system. Take the Delta Montrose Electric Association in southwest Colorado, one of 900 rural power cooperatives in the United States. It serves some 28,000 customers and is far less internet dependent. CEO Jason Bronick. To what degree do you rely on the internet? Uh, you know, most of our internet is uh, for non-critical functions. If somebody hacked into your system, how vulnerable would you be? All of our systems are put in place and have an extensive amount of backups, and we have manual overrides that would allow us to continue to operate. Would you consider changing to a system that relies heavily on the Internet? Uh, we would not. Rural co-ops account for just about 12% of America's power distribution, servicing approximately 42 million people in 47 states. None of these co-ops relies on the Internet for the distribution of power. But as Koppel sees it, it's too late for utilities elsewhere to follow suit and pull the online plug. I don't think we're ever going to give up the Internet. There are too many advantages to the Internet, even if it has the capacity to wreak enormous damage. And all I'm saying is, at least wake up to what its capabilities are. And since there's no turning back, it's important to think ahead.
So what does the average family actually need to be doing? Do they need to be, as Ted Koppel has done, stocking up on water and freeze-dried food? I think those are very important uh, measures. Average citizens need to be able to take care of their own families and their own neighborhoods and their own communities and not assume that Uncle Sam is somehow going to magically bring in the cavalry and rescue them. In the uh, beginning of the book, before the first page, you said to our grandchildren, you named your seven grandchildren, and then you said, here's hoping that Opie, meaning you, got it wrong. You think you might have gotten it wrong? Of course. I mean, there's a possibility. Do I believe I got it wrong? No, I spent a year and a half trying to get it right, uh, and unfortunately, I think I did. We get to the point next. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. November 1st, 1863, 152 years ago today. A day to write home about. For that was the day the future fountain pen magnate George S. Parker was born in Schulzburg, Wisconsin. Annoyed by fountain pens that leaked, young Parker began to design his own. He founded the Parker Pen Company in Janesville, Wisconsin, in 1888 at the age of 25 and won his first patent the very next year. Many other non-leak designs were to follow, and Parker became one of the world's largest pen manufacturers. Even Sherlock Holmes author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle sang Parker's praises. For years it was a family affair. Witness this photo of Parker and his son Kenneth posing with the company's sales force along with the Parker Pen Band in 1925. An aviation enthusiast, Parker even had a plane decked out in the colors of his dual-fold model pen. George Parker died in 1937 at the age of 73, but his pens lived on. They were even used to sign both the German and the Japanese surrenders at the end of World War II. In recent years, Parker pens has gone through a series of ownership changes and relocations. In 2009, the company announced it was closing its Janesville plant. Still, at least one Parker legacy remains in Parker Penn's hometown. A six-bedroom brick home that once belonged to the Parker family was purchased in 2010 by the local congressman, Paul Ryan, who was elected just this past week as Speaker of the House. I do. Thank you. Thank you. Based on the true story... Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traders. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. For a different perspective on the man on the street, you need only look at the works of a rising young painter, as our Rita Braver has been doing. If you look at all of the paintings that I love in art history, 
These are the paintings where great powerful men are being celebrated on the big walls of museums throughout the world. What feels really strange is not to be able to see a reflection of myself in that world. So the New York-based Kehinde Wiley set out to create a new paradigm. Men of color in street dress painted in classical style, often echoing masterworks. The images are considered so hip, they've even been used as a backdrop in the Fox series Empire. Candy Wiley. Yes, indeed. And with paintings selling for as much as $400,000, the work is considered important enough that though he is only 38, a survey of his career is now on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, after opening at the Brooklyn Museum. His work has a broad appeal to high art culture mavens, as well as to people who don't know anything about art, but are taken by his references to hip-hop and to street culture. But Eugenie Tsai, who curated the exhibit in Brooklyn, says that beyond their social statements, the paintings have undeniable artistic merit, as in Wiley's version of St. Andrew. There's so many ways you could read the face of this young man. Deliberate, do you think? I do think it's deliberate. I think one of the uh, hallmarks of great art is a little bit of ambiguity, where things aren't spelled out for you. There's room for interpretation on the part of the, the viewer. With his over-the-top persona, Kehinde Wiley has been compared to Andy Warhol. And like Warhol, he's a celebrity magnet. Michael Jackson commissioned this portrait VH1 ordered up a whole series featuring rap stars. But it's been a hard road to fame. He was raised in Los Angeles, where his mom ran a second-hand goods store to support the family. About how old were you when it started to click that, hey, this is what I like to do, art's what I'm all about? My mother sent me to art classes at the age of 11. I began to have kids around me say, will you make drawings for me? Will you make a painting for me? And it really clicked. He was good enough to earn a Master's of Fine Arts from Yale. And in 2002, a prestigious artist-in-residence slot at the Studio Museum in Harlem. It was in Harlem that he found this mugshot on the street. It crystallized something that I'd been thinking about for a very long time, which is that black men have been giving very little in this world, and that I, as an artist, have the power and the potential and the will to do something about it. So he and a team of helpers began pounding the pavements of New York, asking young black men if they'd like to be photographed and painted in classical style. But some critics have charged that Wiley is actually exploiting his subjects and that the work is cartoonish. Does that hurt, or do you look at it as a learning experience? You can't allow that to be what dictates your work. You simply have to say that they're talking about me. And he can be mischievous. Take a close look at Napoleon leading the army across the Alps. In small ways, I'm taking little jabs at the... The, the masculinity, the, the, the bravado, it, it, even with the fact that there's sperm cells, all of this taking this masculinity down to its most essential component. 
Then there are these intimate portraits in 15th century Flemish style. So I know that this particular portrait has a special meaning for you. Well, this is the first time I've done a portrait of someone that I'm romantically involved with. This is Craig Fletcher, my partner of three years. And I think this is a perfect way of having artistic inspiration and personal stories sort of come together. Wiley has traveled the world painting young men from Brazil to Morocco to Israel. And now he's added women to his artistic repertoire. Excuse me. As shown in the PBS documentary, An Economy of Grace, he once again chose models from the New York streets. I can tell when you're getting into it. You're like, all right, yeah. But this time, he didn't paint them in their street clothes, but in designer gowns <laughs> and fantastic hairdos. The colors aren't quite right yet. He finished much of the work at a second studio he keeps in Beijing, where, in a tradition dating back to the Renaissance, assistants do much of the background work. This is a rare Wiley painting where the subject turns away from us. What it does is it heightens the picture even more, so it charges the space because we want it more. And right now, the world seems to want more of Kehinde Wiley which still amazes him. I started making work that I assumed would be far too garish, far too decadent, far too black for the world to care about. I, to this day, am thankful to whatever force there is out there that allows me to get away with painting the stories of people like me. Head when seconds count. It's about time for a look at the extremes of timekeeping. Later, we'll visit Big Ben, but we begin with a watch on my wrist. Small in every way, except for its $25,000 price tag. Martha Teichner examines the Patek Philippe mystique. Luxury Swiss watchmaker Patek Philippe is discreet about the famous owners of its timepieces. Ostentatious, they aren't. Expensive, they are. We generally start about $12,000, $13,000 and we go up. There are some very complex pieces that are over $7 million. Larry Patinelli is president of Patek Philippe USA. This particular watch, if you'll listen, has two distinct chimes in it. That's beautiful. Ding dong. Ding, ding dong. How much does that cost? This watch is approximately $400,000. To understand why, you have to turn it over. All the fancy mechanical things it does are called complications. And Patek Philippe watches tend to be very complicated indeed which is why the company found itself with a problem. People to repair them in the digital age are hard to find. A little bit more, yeah. So the 175-year-old company decided to open its own watch school at its New York City offices. Around 300 people applied, six were chosen. Start by telling me what personal characteristics 
you look for in order to select students? We need people committed. So commitment is a big quality, I would say. Patience, of course. Master watchmaker Laurent Junot heads the school. We do a training program here that is two years old, but the, the, the learning is not finished. You have to learn all your life. Right now, four weeks into the course, students are learning to make their own tools. They won't even touch a watch for months. Just recently, we were working on small screwdriver heads made out of brass and steel. Michael Morales loves working with his hands, but had no idea what to expect. My initial thought was, I'm going to be in a small little wooden shop, like a pedal, like <laughs> develop skills I never Straight had Straight out of the Pinocchio <laughs> yeah, <laughs> movie. Yeah, the movie. <laughs> the school is free. Students are paid a small stipend to cover expenses. Gammon Kwok had been tutoring elementary school kids. If somebody told me that I'll be training to be a watchmaker a year ago, I looked at them like, what, really? Juan Alonso was working at a men's clothing store. What do you see yourself doing? I want to be as good as Laurent, but... At the end of the course, if they pass their exams, Patek Philippe will hire them. They'll move from here to here, to a lifetime of silence and precision and learning. Ever since I was a little boy, I wanted to be a watchmaker. After 13 years at Patek Philippe, Jason Bird works on watches like the one he showed us through a microscope. Every day, around midnight, to change the date. It can tell you accurately what year, what month, what day it is, even in leap years. And it knows it's a leap year, so it'll automatically go to February 29th. And remember, it's mechanical. There's no computer. In this season of smartwatches, Patek Philippe figures its customers will understand that this is a very smart watch and that watchmakers have a future as well as a past. How are you? Hi. Still to come? Philly's trying to be a comedian, trying. and that word, trying. But she's right, I was trying. Talking the talk with talk show host uh, Bill Maher. Later, remembering the talented Tillman. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The guy asked all the candidates on the stage, what's your biggest weakness? You know, who's going to answer that honestly? <laughs> Wouldn't it be awesome if they did, if they had truth serum before? I, I put my personal ambitions before the good of the country. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. As that Barb from his HBO show this past Friday night demonstrates, it seems Bill Barr will say just about anything to get a laugh or provoke a reaction. Tracy Smith has our Sunday profile. Start the clock. Real Time with Bill Maher is live, unedited, and unapologetic. Now, if you didn't see the debate, let me just cut to the chase for you. None of them got suddenly smart. Are there some topics that are off limits? Not that I could think of. Uh, boring. 
boring or, or not newsworthy. And there was a war in the north and the south. And wait, before that, how about a geography lesson? I okay. Think pe- people... Sudan is the largest country in, in Africa. Where is Africa? Okay. No boring here. Mars' HBO show is a frequent stop for A-list celebrities and politicians from both sides of the aisle who, without network censors, can say whatever they want. It's not bullshit. All right. You're always such a polite bull. I'm just going to be a minute. There you go. Mar is an outspoken liberal atheist. And if you've never heard him say something you might find offensive, just give him time. It's under here. Just know right, that it's you, there. Oh, you got me you? with your imaginary friend. One. Does it bother you that there's a large chunk of America that doesn't like you? Well, it's funny that you say that. There, I'm so aware of that. But it's a little like being the president. Everywhere the president goes, he's in the presidential bubble. And mostly what he sees are people who are breathlessly excited to see him. You don't see the hate on a day-to-day basis. And I don't either. In you all don't? The, of course not. In all the years I've been doing this, the number of times anyone has come up to me and stuck their finger in my face and said, you, so-and-so, you're so wrong about this, maybe twice. Now, in the age of social media, they do it anonymously. So if I chose to read my Twitter feed every day, I could be very depressed. Instead, he seems to be enjoying life as a confirmed bachelor. When you're single, you just have to consult with yourself. And I'm always agreeing with me. What do you want to do now, Bill? I want to watch TV. (laughs) And maybe after 10 minutes, I'll I'll get bored with that and I'll start reading. And then I'll go back to TV. You know, maybe I'm just uh, too spoiled in my own autonomy. But that's how I was drawn. For the record, William Marr Jr. was drawn in 1956 in New York. His mom was Jewish, but he was raised Catholic like his dad. What was going to church like for you? Horrible. Catholics go to catechism, which was religious training, and that's where the nuns taught me all about love by beating it into us. (laughs) By the time he was a student at Cornell University, he'd stopped going to church and started doing stand-up gigs at local clubs. I really didn't want to tell anybody until I was established, but of course you can't do that because you have to pay your dues. Because you were scared that people would say, oh, come on. And I remember hearing my aunt, the rumor was going around the Christmas party, what I was doing, and she said, did you hear? Billy's trying to be a comedian. Oh, dear. (laughs) And that word, trying, you know, just hit me like, wow. But she's right, I was trying. We used to go into confession, and uh, I would bring a lawyer in with me. (laughs) And he kept trying. In an early appearance on The Tonight Show, he turned his Catholic and Jewish upbringing into a punchline. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I think you know Mr. Cohen. Along the way, you were on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, what? Many times. More than 25 times. So you must have thought, I'm doing something right. Yeah, I knew I was a stand-up that was uh, well thought of, but that was a different era. Comedy became a thing right when I started. And everybody wanted to be a comic, and so it was very hard to stand out from the crowd unless you started doing your own show. How'd you get politically incorrect? Comedy Central was new. They needed product. They asked me if I had any ideas for a show. Get four people from different walks of life with different ideologies, different levels of intellectual quotient, and put it together as a delightful train wreck. And this is Politically Incorrect. Politically Incorrect premiered in 1993. Then, as now, his guest list was stunning. Jay came on. So did George. 
and that. Jerry. My, my TV show, when, first, when we first did the pilot... You really need a plug at this point, Jerry. <laughs> I would hardly call being on this show a plug, though. But anyway... The show, which moved to ABC in 1997, was doing well. Until 2001, when, in the week after 9-11, Mars said this. Staying in the airplane when it hits the building, say what you want about it, not cowardly. Do you regret saying it? Absolutely not. It was true then, it was true on September 10th, it was true on September 12th, and it had nothing to do with criticizing America. But, you know, this was six days after 9-11. Affiliates dropped the show, advertisers ran for cover, and in May 2002, ABC pulled the plug. But by February of 03, he was back on HBO, live on Friday nights. How are you? Hi, good, how are you? He rehearses from no, noon no, Thursday is, until airtime Friday night. If, if Russia winds up shooting down one of our planes, it could start World War III, which could go nuclear. And then we will never get to the bottom of what's in Hillary's emails. So every joke is tested in front of a live audience. Your so-called Russian dressing is just ketchup and mayonnaise. Like this translation of Vladimir Putin's UN speech. They say Russia is a fake democracy, but it's not like our two candidates are Stalin's wife and Lenin's little brother Jeb. I'm doing a specific show for a specific audience that expects a certain, I think, level of quality. It's an HBO audience. There. After the run-through, Mar is. So, seldom satisfied. Uh, it's, it's not just a laugh, it's the type of laugh. The week we were there, the Putin gag made the cut. You're a nation of fat people in workout clothes. Uh, the irony amuses me. Do you regret anything you've said? I regret something I say every week. I don't have any major ideological regrets. I can't think of things that I've said that I really want to take back. Mostly what I regret when I drive home Friday night is, oh, you know, I should have let that person talk more on that or I shouldn't have cut them off there. But, do you chew on that? Yeah, I do. I have a hard time sleeping Friday night. But uh, that's just the perfectionist in me. You're not going to shoot with me? No, I will, but you're, you're going to laugh at me. Why? This will be comedy, Bill. For Bill Maher, being a perfectionist has paid off. Oh, look at this. <laughs> His L.A. home has its own basketball court. Oh, she stopped me. Yeah. Temporarily. He's also a minority owner of the New York Mets, who just happened to be in the World Series this year. As far as investments go, they're not making any new baseball teams in New York City. It's a sound investment. Once again, Mr. Lucky. All right, tough guy. He also gave a million dollars to reelect President Obama in 2012. Look at this. This chick cannot miss. The secret to his wealth? Nice. I don't have stupid hobbies like other dumbass celebrities. I don't have a hundred cars. I don't collect art or go to hookers or do cocaine or what are the other stupid buy yachts and I mean the alimony and many of that. So <laughs> the money piled up and I'm glad it did because that's what I spent it on. Because I remember saying to somebody, they were like, wow, you spent a million dollars on Obama's pack? I was like, not even the most expensive thing I bought this month. <laughs> Haven't the good people of Transylvania been stereotyped enough? <laughs> Remember, Drac lives matter. 13 years in, real time is still going strong. The last man your age to cause this kind of excitement, I gotta think, is Mick Jagger. Clearly, the man who's become a hero to the left has to be doing something right. Look at these two dummies taking a selfie at the pivotal moment of their wedding ceremony. 
there's a photographer standing right behind you. Ahead. Dogged determination. Okay, Tilly, you ready to go do your thing? It happened this past week. Let's go skateboard. Word of the passing of Tillman, the skateboarding bulldog. Woo! Resident of Oxnard, California, the agility of Tillman was known around the world. His high-velocity videos were internet favorites, and his exploits were legendary. Most famously, perhaps, he won the coveted Guinness World Record for fastest skateboarding dog back in 2009. Nor was Tillman confined to land, as his owner, Ron Davis, explained. His first passion is skateboarding, and when it gets too hot to skate, he learned how to do this, so he skimboards when it gets hot. Sadly, Tillman suffered from a chronic irregular heartbeat. He collapsed and died Tuesday night on the way to the vet, at the ripe old age for a bulldog of 10. From dry level pavements to oceans in fog, nothing stopped Tillman, the double threat dog. Be it skateboard or skimboard, he went ever faster. Condolences, please, to Ron Davis, his master. Here's my cell here. This is yours? Next, is Bill mine. Geist, behind bars. Based on the true story... Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. What better place for a rock reunion than on the island they call The Rock? With Bill Geist, we set sail. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome aboard the Alcatraz Alumni of a renowned San Francisco institution recently cruised to a rather remarkable reunion. And you guys never bumped into each other at other facilities? No, we met here. On the Isle of Alcatraz. Most of us were hard-headed criminals. We were convicts. We came here hard-headed, and we left the same way. Former guards, inmates, and their families were invited to return to the fabled prison. Welcome to The Rock. Celebrated in a dozen or more films, and once home to crime superstars, Al Capone, George Machine Gun Kelly, and of course, Robert Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz. Dog block. Solitary again. Hmm? Did you ever meet him? Well, nobody met him. He was in solitary confinement. Returning inmate, Robert Luke, class of 59. I robbed a bank with a machine gun, so I got you two 10-year sentences. Tell me what it was like to be a guard in Alcatraz. It wasn't very good. Guard George DeVincenzi, class of 58. My first day, my first assignment, the first hour of the Monday morning, I was in a murder in the barber shop. The customer getting his hair cut jumps out of the chair and the barber goes after him with a pair of seven inch barber shears. Wow. 
gets them in the throat, in the heart, in the lungs, and me like a damn fool, blowing a whistle, trying to separate them. Debbie Townsend is the daughter of a former inmate. Uh, my dad was here for 12 and a half years from 47 to 59. And I'm not so much proud of the things he did, but the bottom line is he was my dad. Ex-con Bill Baker, class of 59. Everybody who came here came here for breaking rules in other prisons. Didn't you start out, when your original charge auto theft or something? Yeah, when I was 18 years old, I stole a car in Portland, Oregon. I went to prison and started escaping. Just like all reunions, they renewed old acquaintances and recalled old times. Only here in a more steely setting. They also told us if you ever went up to, to Birdman's cell, make sure you don't get closer than three feet from the, from the bars. Because if he comes up to the bars and you're closer than that, he might grab you. It's hail and farewell to Alcatraz. Wearing handcuffs and leg irons, the last 27 of its 1,500 prisoners leave the crumbling, unsalvageable fortress for more modern federal penitentiaries. Alcatraz closed in 1963, and aging alums are a vanishing breed. Former reunions used to draw big crowds, but at this one there were but three guards and only two ex-cons. Another alum, the infamous mobster Whitey Bulger, had to send his regrets. He's doing two life terms in Florida. Uh, Whitey Bulger was here while I was here. Guard Jim Albright, dressed in his old uniform for the occasion. His only fault was if you did something he didn't like, he wanted to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> the honored returnees mingled with the thousands of tourists that swarmed the island. They listened to audio tours and Robert Luke. Now when that door slammed shut behind me the first time, uh, you really know that you're in maybe the last prison because I'd never heard that sound before. What do you think draws the crowds? What is it about Alcatraz? Well, it's probably just the notoriety of the place. And, and uh, we were supposed to be the worst people that ever lived. <laughs> uh, you know, here I am, a nice old guy, so how could I have done that? <laughs> but you're one of the guys who realized when he was in prison that this wasn't the way to go. Well, I had a, what I called an epiphany. All the things I realized I had done, everything, was by my own choice. So I had actually chosen to come to Alcatraz. Mm. And once I believed that, all the hatred went out of me. So then I knew that I could get out and try to stay out. So I got out when I was 30 years old, just short of 30 years old. How old are you now? 88. Former inmate Bill Baker took a different path. For him, Alcatraz was a trade school. I learned how to counterfeit payroll checks, yes. And everybody just about that I know here, that's what they live for, to get out and rob banks, and cash hot checks or whatever. Here's my cell here. This is yours? This is mine. It's six foot by nine foot. Six by nine. That's not even the size of a decent sized rug. Smaller than most people's bathrooms today. I can put my hand on both walls like that, flat on my hand on both walls. At age 82, Baker says lately he's been thinking about retiring from his career in the crime sector. The last prison system I served, I got out four and a half years ago. Just got married a couple of days ago, and now I have a house, a car, a wife, and a dog. I got it honestly and legitimately, and I'm proud of it. 
took you a long time. Took me a long time. And in that time, returning to Alcatraz has become a bit easier for some. Oh, it's not bad. You know, I'm getting used to being here. And uh, I can leave when I want to. That's the main thing. Coming up, just for kicks. What does one retiring high school coach call his proudest moment? Steve Hartman has the answer. Good job. Hey, heel. After 25 years at West Blockton High School in West Blockton, Alabama, football coach Greg Fernetti says his proudest moment came just last week with this relatively pointless extra point. It had no effect on the game whatsoever, but as you'll soon see, that kick made his career. Frenetti has lived for football all his life. He played as a kid, went into coaching after college, and most importantly, right, when he got married, he dreamed of having a son who could play for him one day. I envision him doing what I did, playing football. A little you. Yeah, a little me, that's right. But here's what he got instead. Jody is the oldest of Greg's two daughters. No boys, other than the 40 or so he pretty much adopts every year. After school is football, on the weekends is football, off season it's football, so. So imagine Jody's surprise when her dad recently announced he would quit coaching. I just got to thinking one of these days I'm gonna blink my eye and my daughters are gonna be gone and I'm gonna have missed something, you know. The sport that had mattered so much for so long will now be replaced by cheer competitions and girls softball games. I'm like, Dad, are you sure you wanna do this? And I realize he's given this up for me I need to do something for him. Which brings us back to that extra point. If you look closely, you'll notice the kicker has a ponytail. Jody practiced for months, got the team's permission, and then scored one for her dad. The final point in his last home game. I just darted straight for my dad, and he hugged me, and that was the best. That was the best hug. I was very excited to see your daughter, you know, running off the field like that in full uniform, you know. Better than a boy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't trade anything for my girls, nothing. I mean, if I had to go back and do it all over again, I'd say I want them to right there. And that's the great thing about young men who think they want a boy. They grow up to be old dads who know better. have six of the 13 bandmates up here are original Miami. Next, Gloria gets her name in lights. And later, Big Ben's little problem. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And I do The 1987 hit, Anything For You, by the legendary Gloria Estefan, is now on Broadway. A new musical based on her life is currently in previews. Her path to center stage wasn't always an easy one, as she tells our Lee Cowan. 
Back in the 80s, few knew what Latin crossover really meant in music until this happened. Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine became one of the decade's signature sounds. It's no easy feat to make the conga more than just a wedding reception ritual, but Gloria did that and much more. She was polished, poppy, and popular. She's had more than 100 top 10 hits across the Billboard charts, brought home multiple Grammys, and sold more than 100 million albums worldwide. These days, Gloria Estefan is at a different stage in her life. Whoa. Literally. No, no, she's singing, no clue of what's happening to you. At 58, the queen of Latin pop is seeing her life turned into a megawatt Broadway musical, On Your Feet. Is it what you expected? I don't think I ever could have imagined what this was going to be like. I never would have imagined it'd be so emotional. It's very personal. Oh my gosh, so much so. Hello, baby. The bread up there. Thank you. Gloria is played by Anna Villafagne, who bears an uncanny resemblance to Estefan. The minute she walked in, it was one of those movie moments. Like, you know, when they say they kid around in the movies, that face, I must have that face. <laughs> they talked, and they soon found out they had a lot oh, more in common. She and Gloria are both Cuban-American. Both grew up in Miami. And get this. I think this was my locker right here. Hello. They both Hi. went to the very same Catholic high school. It's like stepping back in the time warp. A few years apart, mind you. I remember Gloria coming to visit school when you did the children's book, Noel's yes, Treasure Hunt. You were here for that. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. And fun fact, I walked to where we are right now. There was a table, and I walked with my mom. Shana and was like, signing got books. It. You signed a book for me. I've never told you that. that. <laughs> During a recent visit to their alma mater, the music made the years between them fade away. There they were, two daughters of immigrant families who had gone on to make it happen. I literally started as a sophomore in college because of the education I got at Lourdes and was able to whip through a double major and um, psych and communications majors and a French minor, go figure, no music. I thought I had to get a job. It really irks me when I hear someone say that the American dream is dead because that cannot be further from the truth. This is one of the few countries in the world that doesn't put limitations on you, only you put them on yourself. If you're willing to work hard and persevere and follow your dreams and your passion and get ready to get a lot of no's and find your way around those no's, this is the place, the dream place to do that. That was a great day. Yeah. yeah, perfect. Her partner in that dream is the only man she ever dated. Got to keep that tension up. <laughs> Her husband, multi-Grammy-winning producer, Emilio Estefan. What was the first thing you noticed about Gloria? I think her eyes. Yeah? yeah. Her eyes? I love her eyes. I still love her eyes, almost 40 years after. The play begins as they did. Young Cuban immigrants fleeing the regime of Fidel Castro. Gloria and her family were among the very first wave of exiles to arrive in Miami, settling in this tiny apartment. This was all 
supposed to be temporary. I mean, you thought you were going to go home, right? Yes, everybody. Everybody thought it was going to be a matter of months. I still have my round-trip ticket, Pan Am Airlines. Still do. I still have it. Gloria's father, who'd fought in the Bay of Pigs invasion and later served in the U.S. Army in Vietnam, developed multiple sclerosis and required around-the-clock care, which Gloria helped provide. And I used to lock myself up in my bedroom when I was taking care of my dad and just cry through my music because I, did, I wanted to be strong for my mom. I didn't want her to see the weight of the responsibility that I had. But she rarely sang for anyone else until she happened to be at a Cuban wedding where Emilio was performing. I walk in and there's a guy playing Do the Hustle on the accordion with this band. <laughs> Do the Hustle? Do the Hustle. Ding, 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 ding. And I'm going like, whoa. Her mother talked her into getting up on stage. Emilio was so impressed he asked her to join his band, the Miami Latin Boys. But Gloria said, I can't, my mom would kill me. She yeah. would kill me. Even though she pushed you up on stage. Yeah, yeah, but she just pushed me up on stage for her own personal <laughs> enjoyment, not to like launch me into a band traipsing around town. The rest, of course, is history. Their unique blend of dance, salsa, and pop took not only the Latin world by storm, it took everyone by storm. But one night, at the height of all their fame, it almost all came to a screeching halt. Authorities in Scranton, Pennsylvania today said pop singer Gloria Estefan and her band were on a tour bus when it collided with a tractor trailer. The accident happened on a snowy Pennsylvania highway in March of 1990. Hovering over me is Emilio, bleeding from God knows where, and he's going, babe, babe, and I'm going, I can't get up. Babe, I can't get up, I, you know, I think I broke my back. She had broken her back. It took an excruciating hour and a half for rescuers to arrive. What were you thinking during that whole time on the bus? I want her alive. But then you start thinking, life is not fair. She was told she might never walk again, let alone perform. So she returned here, to the couple's home on Star Island in Miami where Gloria started intense and painful physical therapy in this swimming pool. Little by little, the muscles could at least, at least be exercised and, and used. And, How many hours a day were you doing that? I was rehabbing between six and seven hours a day because what I would do is I would go six in the pool. Yeah, because, I mean, I was on a mission. After nearly a year of rehab, Emilio thought Gloria was ready for her comeback, a live performance at the American Music Awards. It was a weird feeling because I'd say, something goes wrong, she's going to kill me. <laughs> this is a live show, live on TV. I go, what if I break down? What if I can't hold it together? Ladies and gentlemen, the American Music Awards, welcome back with love, Gloria Estefan. And he's going, you'll do it, you'll do it. You know something? That's my personality. <laughs> that's who I am. I mean, you know something? I'm a believer. I think, you know, you know that's what we make such a great couple. The song they wrote, Coming out of the dark, said it all. It's literally a thank you to everybody that helped me get through this very difficult time. And the fact that their prayers, their light, their good wishes carried me through this whole time. And I wanted them to hear it. And I'll be so much stronger. It's the high point of the Broadway production, 
which isn't just about her music or her physical battle. It's about the couple's cultural battles, too. Because whether you know it or not, this is what an American looks like. The F. Stephans hope that their fans will see their story of immigration as a truly American experience. I'm hoping that they actually realize how much more similar we all are than just merely celebrating our differences. Rather than seeing somebody different on the stage, that they're seeing themselves. And in that, Gloria and Emilio Estefan show themselves to be true crossovers who did, in fact, get caught by the rhythm. Coming up, it's about time. It's about time to look at a timepiece a bit bigger than the wristwatches we saw before. Mark Phillips found it on the other side of the Atlantic. Big Ben has chimed out the hours for 156 years, or has it? What is probably the world's most famous clock has not only been the heartbeat of London. BBC News at six o'clock. The House of Lords is about to be. Through the BBC's radio broadcasts, it's arguably been the way the world has kept time. Big Ben has now been set to Greenwich Mean Time. British summertime ended a week ago. But it turns out Big Ben's reputation for reliability has taken a bit of a hit. Frankly, the thing has always been a little temperamental. The ancient clockwork may be a charming example of Victorian engineering, but it's never been particularly accurate. The clock always speeds up or slows down a little according to the temperature. And people like Ian Westworth, who maintain the clock, have literally had time on or in their hands. He's been using coins to adjust the clock, and he's got it down to a science. Putting on or taking off a penny on the pendulum like this, you speed up or slow down the clock by two-fifths of a second in 24 hours. But lately, fractions of a second haven't been the problem. Last summer, Big Ben was a whole six seconds out of whack. It's crunch time for Big Ben. A special committee studying the clock is considering whether the whole thing is so clapped out it needs to be shut down and rebuilt, a process that could take years. It's even been suggested the 14-foot-long minute hands may be ready to fall off because their bearings are shot. But stopping the clock, says newspaper columnist Quentin Letts, would be like stopping London itself. It's not necessarily tradition, it's deeper than that. This is really, this is the marrow in our bones, this old clock. One clock. One clock. And, you know, uh, the, the thought of it not being there or one hand flying off or, heaven forbid, the thing going digital is just too <laughs> gruesome to consider. What's worse, the prospect of losing Big Ben comes at a time when many of the famous symbols of old London seem to be disappearing. The much-loved hop-on, hop-off buses are gone to be replaced by these unloved models. The old red phone boxes are only kept around for the tourists since the advent of you-know-what. And London's famous black cabs are now threatened by Uber. Yet something's got to be done. 
the thing may stop itself if it isn't fixed. They're actually running out of time. And the tower it sits in is in need of urgent repair as well. Unlike the buses, though, in Big Ben's case, you have to think they'll find a way. Well, I think the, Brit the British people have always been very romantically attached to the great symbols of the past. We cherish things. We're a small place. So we have to get used to making do with the old because there isn't space to build the new. But it's such a beautiful thing. I think that it's legitimately worshipped because it's not just to do with the old. It's the fact it's a really dinky, dainty-looking thing. And, uh, you know... I, 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 Pity if it weren't there. It would be wonderful if it were uh, kept. It would be a disaster if it goes. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.